So the Bible reading, book of 2 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 23. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with, with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. <coughs> then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is experienced in war, he will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. <coughs> If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counselled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel, a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away, and went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. 
When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counselled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Please keep your Bibles open. We prayed, we've read, and now to look at to 2 Timothy chapter 17. And let me come at it with a question. Do you find it hard to be wise? Now, next uh, month we have a large decision to make as a country. And uh, probably lots of us don't know which way to jump. And it is hard to be wise, isn't it? to know everything before we make up our minds. Although there is actually one way in which we can all be wise and are all wise. It's called the wisdom of hindsight. That is, after the event, after everything has happened, after some time has come and gone, then you can say, actually, that was a smart move, or why did I do such a thing? and get it so badly wrong. And I think I should be all a bit like that. Uh, when I was 30, I looked back on the decisions I made when I was 20, and I thought, what a fool. Uh, when I was 40, I looked back on the decisions I made when I was 30, and I thought, why? <laughs> and you follow the logic of that, and there will come a time, if I live much longer, that I look back on some of the decisions I'm making now, and think, what an idiot. <laughs> and you're going to be doing the same thing too, so don't laugh too loudly. <laughs> because we're all wise in hindsight, aren't we? And we then look back and we think, actually, those were mistakes. And we shouldn't have made them. Now, the question I want to ask is, is it possible that we can be wise in a different way. Looking forward rather than looking back. Could we be wise with foresight? And the Bible tells us that is why it was written. Because God has made plans about what's going to happen and they are set and nothing will change them. And those plans that the Bible, that the God makes, he reveals to us as his promises. And the invitation is to live in step with his promises. And then we will look back and say, that was a smart thing I did, because actually that was exactly what the future turned out to be.
Whereas anyone who doesn't build on what God has promised will look back with profound regret having had the worst moves, made the worst moves and decisions in their lives. Now that is actually what is going on in this part of the Bible, which is 2 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to see uh, two things. We're going to see a brilliant man, but then we're going to see this amazing, brilliant God. First, the brilliant uh, man. And his name is uh, Ahithophel. Uh, it's uh, good to take some practice before you pronounce it. It's uh, in verse 1. And he is the mastermind behind the plot of a young, pre- uh, young prince to get rid of his father, who is called David, and become king in his place. His name is Absalom. And Ahithophel is the genius in the outfit that's making it all happen. You can see how much he depends on Ahithophel because uh, in chapter 16, verse 20, when um, uh, Absalom finally enters the city of David, he's taken over HQ, he's finally arrived as the one in charge. And what does he do? I have got a foggiest what to do. Let's ask Ahithophel in chapter 16, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your counsel. What shall we do? This is the man he leans on. And immediately Ahithophel has this uh, brilliant idea at the end of chapter 16, which is to tell Absalom, now the way to stamp your authority is to take over your, husband, your, your, your father's concubines and to publicly make them your own. And so this portable bedroom was set up on the palace roof and Abs- uh, Absalom uh, takes his father's concubines uh, for himself. Like we said last time, it was interesting that God promised that that was what was going to happen uh, when uh, he spoke through Nathan in, uh, one, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he said, that's what's going to happen in broad daylight and in public. And where David first began uh, his problems, when he looked from his palace roof into a woman having a shower, now on that same palace roof, Uh, God's judgment begins to strike home and his concubines are taken over by another man. And in that, Absalom is making a very sharp point that he is now the king in charge. You take over a king's harem and you are the king. In fact, actually, you're making a bigger statement than that. You're saying, actually, that that king is dead. You can take over someone's wives when they've died and David is as good as dead, therefore, his wives are mine. It's a huge, brilliant, bold proclamation of Absalom as king and Ahithophel is the one who suggested it. And now he comes up with another brilliant plan to get rid of David in chapter 17, right at the start. Uh, you've seen uh, what he has proposed. 
uh, he's proposed, uh, sorry, I should have said that Ahithophel was such a, a great one that at the end of chapter 16 in verse 23 you see the people put what he said on the same level uh, as what God said, uh, treated him with as much respect. His counsel never backfired. He never got it wrong. And now he comes up with this new brilliant master plan on how to get rid of David. Strike now. Let's go tonight in chapter 17, verse 1. Let me 12, choose 12,000 men and I will rise and pursue David tonight. No time to waste. And uh, uh, David, you don't need to be involved in this. I'll do it all for you. I will come upon him. I will arise and pursue David. I will strike down the king. And notice, it is going to be a surgical strike. It will be only the king who will die. And he says in verse 3, You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. That's all you need to do for the whole country to unite around you. Brilliant strategy. Brilliant plan. And uh, no wonder everybody in verse 4 says this is clearly the right thing we have to do. Now it's very brief, just those few verses, because it is very brilliant. It is plain and simple and effective. This is a brilliant man. Now let me introduce you to a brilliant God. And this brilliant God is also going to operate through a man. Now his name is Hushai in verse 5. And he too is an advisor. <coughs> and Absalom doesn't know this. But you and I know this wearing on the secret because we've read chapter 15 verse 34. What do you mean you haven't read chapter 15 34? Let's read it now. Because chapter 15 verse 34 says that David is sending him back to the city so that he can go and tell Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king, as I've been your father's servant in time past, and I'll be your servant. And then, and then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. So he's there on David's side specifically to um, uh, defeat the council of Ahithophel. And now what we find is that Absalom asks Hushai in verse 5 for a second opinion. Why does he do that? Everybody already thinks in verse 4 the plan's brilliant. So why Ask anybody else what to do. Well, you won't know the answer until you get to verse 14. But it is strange that he does that. And what's more strange is that he not only asks for a second opinion, but he starts his asking by explaining in verse 6 all that Ahithophel had already said. Now that allows 
Hushai to punch holes in the military strategy of this genius. You can't get a better opportunity except through hearing what he has already said. And so he now knows what to say. It is interesting to see how he says it. The first thing to notice is that actually while he's on David's side and while God is going to use him to defeat the council and to bring calamity on Absalom, the first thing to notice about him is that actually what he says is all waffle and words. If you look at what he says, it is three and a half times longer than what Ahithophel said. He's buying David time to make good his escape. And it's a nice start in verse 7. Quite clever, isn't it, really? Because he says, well, in this case, the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not so good. Heck, look, you can't expect Ahithophel to get it right every time, can you? I think we could do better than that, actually. And so he goes on. Uh, it's always uh, good uh, politicians use uh, language to create fear. And he does that. Your father is like a bear robbed of her cubs. You fancy going near him now? In verse 8. He rubs in uh, the enormity of David's military experience. In verse 9. Uh, David's been a specialist at uh, what uh, Charles IX in our army days would have called escape and evasion. Uh, you read the book of 1 Samuel and it's all about how David is a master at that. And so he plays on that and he says, uh, you're not going to get him uh, uh, as easily as that. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, but look, be very careful because if David draws first blood, you're going to put the wind up everybody. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. No, 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 no. Wait just a, a bit longer. Gather a large force. Get everybody involved in the attack. Unite the whole country. If everybody is involved, then they're all going to own it and be on your side. Make your position so much more secure and safe and unassailable. And what's more, Absalom, you've got to be the one that leads it. We'd like you to be the one in charge. In verse 11. I can't say all is ready gathered to you and that you go to battle in person. None of this. Ahithophel, I'll do that for you. And then in verse 12, don't just simply take out David. No, 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 no. You need to remove everyone who's loyal to him. Get rid of this rebellion, root and branch. Don't let any survivor stay to poison your kingdom in the future. So, you see, he is very cunningly put, Absalom 
at center stage in everything. And if you know how big-headed Absalom is, you know that actually that fits in perfectly with, uh, with Absalom's philosophy of life. And you see the difference between the two men. Because Ahithophel knows how to uh, win against David, but Hushai knows how to win with Absalom, play to his ego. And now everybody backs him in verse 14. It's a duff plan. Why do they back him? Well, you keep reading verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that he might bring harm upon Absalom. What you're really seeing here is the brilliance of God. And if you knew the story, you know that this is the brilliance of God in answer to prayer. If you want to see the brilliance of God, well, it comes as a result of praying. Only that's slightly confusing. Because what David prayed was that the opposite would happen when he prayed. In chapter 15, verse 31, if uh, you have a look, David has prayed, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. What happens is Absalom's counsel is downright brilliant. It is the opposite of what David was asking for. Why? It's a very important thing for us to get this because you see what we normally think is that we, just like David, want God to remove man's capacity for evil. Please make this evil man come to nothing. Make his counsel foolishness. We want God to downsize evil and his capacity to hurt us. That's what we all want. We're just like David in that. But instead... What God seems to do in our world is he lets evil excel itself. So that in this case, evil is playing at the top of its game. This is unassailably brilliant advice from this enemy. But then what happens is God proves his brilliance is even greater by defeating evil at its height. Just like there's two mountains you might remember at the start of our meeting. Yes, he could downsize evil, but instead he shows his greatness by overcoming it at the max. And that's exactly what we see when we... Sorry, uh, you see the wicked, and it grows, but then God removes it. And you see him doing that especially brilliantly on the cross. Because what happens on the cross is that uh, the best men act in the most brilliant way they can to murder God himself 
and therefore in their brilliance they do the worst thing. Evil is at its peak at that point. But what happens? All that does is to simply achieve God's brilliant plan to die in our place, to take our punishment in our place, so that his brilliant eternal life is now made accessible to everyone. So God doesn't dumb down evil. He defeats it by using it for his purposes to show his greater glory. And that's how we experience the brilliance of God. Our ultimate enemy, our greatest enemy, will be death. Death is not going to be scaled down. We will experience it. There is no escape. But then, wonderfully, through death, God uses death to, in that defeat of death, bring us into a full experience of his massive glory through resurrection and new life. So death will do its worst to us, but resurrection is what is then. Uh, it is a precursor to the resurrection that God has always planned for us in its place. So this is the brilliance of God. Only notice that it's not supernatural brilliance. It is brilliance through the ordinary machinations, the plans and the counterplans, the ordinary stuff of life. God uses to weave and bring out the brilliance of what he intends to achieve. And God's plans are always therefore going to win. And finally at the end, bright Ahithophel sees that. He realizes that that promise that God made to David that he would be his king forever would ultimately not be derailed by Absalom or by him. And so he saddles his donkey, he goes home, he puts his house in order and he hangs himself. Now the interesting thing is that last week if you were here you would notice from 2 Samuel chapter 16 that Ahithophel, you know in the, in the, in the Bible that David is the Messiah, the God's anointed king of the Old Testament, getting us ready for Jesus. God's anointed king of the New Testament. And Ahithophel is uh, there in the story as Judas is. Ahithophel in the Old Testament mirrors Judas in the New Testament. And we saw uh, those parallels last week, um, the, the talks on the website, if you'd like to go and listen to it again, you missed it. But uh, here again, you see how uh, Judas is there in his character. Uh, uh, Judas too wants to go out into the night in verse 1, leading people against God's king. And he too ends up hanging himself, like Absalom in verse 23, because it always ends badly. It always ends badly for those who won't fit into God's plans and follow his king. 
the end will be the loss of everything. That is what this story is there to teach us. So what does it mean for us today? Well, if you are new to God's plans and uh, the Bible, and maybe Christian things uh, in total, uh, can you see that the way to be wise is to find out what God's plans are and to fit in with them? It's okay, Dorothy, we'll leave it there. Um, And to fit into them. Make God your king now in the present because that's what he will be in line with God's plans in the future. So it makes sense to be brilliant and fit in with those plans rather than to be like Ahithophel which is to be bright and to be busted. It is important, isn't it, that we can build our lives trusting what God says will happen and we will then look back and say, I'm really glad I did that. His promises are there to help us to live with foresight and therefore to live with wisdom. Now you see that chapter ends with a group of people who do that. We didn't read it because it was already a long reading. But when you look at verses 27 to uh, 29 in chapter 17, you see there are a group of people there who now want to come together to serve God's king. That is the wise way to do If you understand the future, then here is the group that will be uh, our model. The group that show us the wise ways to understand how it's going and to fall into step with that. And we will see, when you get to chapter 19, that these guys were wise. And the invitation is for us to be wise like them. What happens if you, uh, you're not new, you've knocked around church circles for a bit, But um, in what way can we be wise in a way that isn't helpful? We may not be entirely like Ahithophel, although Ahithophel was actually a part of God's people. But we can be like him in this way. Ahithophel really sought to capitalize on his situation and to make a profit for himself in the process. That's what he was wanted to do as chief advisor to the king. That is what Judas wanted to do in his turn. How is it the Christians today might fall into that trap? I wonder if we might do it like this. That instead of actually finding out what God's plans are and fitting in with them, What we come to church to do is to essentially enlist his support for our plans to come into fruition. Our plans for our good, for our comfort. It is interesting, uh, only yesterday I got a letter through the letterbox uh, from uh, uh, a church that meets uh, a couple of roads away, uh, an African church that said, 
Feel the touch of God upon your life to help you with your immigration issues. It speaks volumes actually about what people have on their minds when they go to African churches, if that is the headline first thing that they ask for help with. Fascinating area like this to get that insight into what churches perceive the big need is in their uh, target group. But that is to essentially say, I've got my plans and I'm going to, I need the touch of God to make these plans happen. That is to be ultimately creating my plans and I'm not going to fit into God's plans, he's there to fit into mine. And I think it's where we, what we pray for that shows us whether we're praying in line with God and for his promises to come into fruition or whether we're praying for our plans to come into fruition. The area of prayer, I think, is usually quite a good revelation of whose plans we want to fit into, God's or ours. Whereas the Bible tells us, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us as well. His plans come first. It's important for us to realize that if uh, we're not Christians or if we're, I guess, uh, religious people who have been to church lots but haven't learnt that uh, key truth. The other thing that might be the case is if you're someone who is a person who loves God's plans, you want God's promises to come uh, and to uh, see uh, him revealing his great kingly rule over the earth. And yet you feel very frustrated that evil just seems to keep growing. Nothing diminishing, but it just seems that there is this escalation of evil. And prayers almost seem to make it worse, bringing out evil at a higher extent than before. What is there to comfort us when that is the case? Surely the lesson of this chapter is that this is how God operates. He doesn't scale down evil in answer to prayer. But what he does is ultimately he lays down a foundation to defeat evil at uh, its worst. And so God's brilliance is not to reduce evil, it is even to use evil to achieve his purposes. Rather like those wretched songs you get in the uh, cars that you get in the summer where um, you have this huge bass drum beat waiting at the traffic lights, pounding away. And you walk past, and you know you've got five minutes of this wretched thing before the traffic light changes. And you hear this, and your heads begin to spin with the noise. And uh, you wish that you'd turn it down or. Uh, wind up his window or do something that the speakers would break or overload their circuits um, and somehow that evil would be you know, be a, a quieter din but it doesn't happen like that but what you find is that God in his amazing way uses that rhythm and captures it and weaves it into a much bigger brilliant piece of music where that 
beat becomes part of his brilliance to show us how glorious he is. And I think that is our uh, understanding of the world today, that in the end, anti-God uh, work is not, not there to just simply dumb down, down evil, but to show us in an even greater way the amazing brilliance of God. And we see that in this story, and we will see that in real life ourselves. They maybe they want to talk to God about uh, perhaps wanting to uh, fall into step with his promises tonight. This is new to you. Say, God, please, from now on, please help me to make Jesus my king and uh, live uh, in that way. It may be that uh, you resolve tonight to change your prayer life, praying in for his promises uh, and his plans to be achieved more than yours. And it may be that tonight you want to thank him for a new view of the darkness that seems to be perhaps overlapping your life and thanking him that that is his stepping stone to show you his greatness in new ways. Let's take a moment just to uh, pray uh, in our own private way and then after that I'll lead us in a prayer and then we take some questions and answers uh, to clear up any confusion or to allow you a chance to say something too. Let's keep quiet while we pray for a minute and then I'll close us in prayer. But let me pray. Father, thank you for showing us the brilliance of man's plans. We'll only accomplish the brilliance of your plans even when they are aimed against you. Please help us to build our lives, trusting that to be true, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.